Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we talk to traffic and mobility experts, discuss innovation, and highlight business leaders within transport and city planning. Hello, my name is Emily Bobbers, and welcome back to another episode of the Bite Size podcast. Often, when we consider innovations across transport, we think of the really big, big things, right? We think of AI, automation, and big data. But what if there were so much simpler solutions that were almost right underneath our noses? Often we neglect to think about how we can augment the existing infrastructure that we've already got. So improving our road friction or even the user experience of a pedestrian crossing, for example. So on this episode, our guest is Dave Jones. So Dave is the External Affairs Director for Smarterlight Group. They're a group dedicated to making our roads, buildings and infrastructure better, safer and greener. Uh, they provide safety and emergency solutions to the transport and building sectors, world-leading world photoluminescent LED and surfacing technology. It's really interesting stuff. Today, we're talking about how something as small as improving the friction on our roads can decrease crash factors by up to 40%. Dave, who has over 25 years of experience across public and private businesses in transport, is a very strong advocate for spearheading a culture of innovation within government bodies and transport in general, and for improving the user experience of the built environment. Fostering a culture of innovation within transport and infrastructure benefits all roads users and roadside users. So how do we make this the norm? And that's kind of what we're discussing today. How can we create and foster this community and culture of consistent innovation to make our city safer and more user-friendly, which is often not a term used in conjunction with transport? So, Dave, thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Emily. So the first question that I have for you is, of course, about your background uh, and how you got involved in transport, but also Smarter Light. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's a, it's a good question. Uh, and it was a fair while ago, but uh, I, uh, when I left university, um, or university, I had some passionate transport lecturers, including Professor Mike Taylor, was quite influential. And I then went to work as a graduate for the South Australian Department of Road Transport, as it was then, and got really thrown in the deep end working in major projects and then sent off to the country as part of the training program um, quite quickly, ended up staying there for several years uh, working in Port Lincoln, which is about mm. seven to eight hour drive away from Adelaide. It wasn't the uh, sort of place you could easily duck home for the, the weekend. <laughs> you had to become part of the community uh, as such. And being so far from a head office, you got thrown into everything from construction to traffic engineering to answering queries from members of the public and and I loved it. Uh, it, was a, it was a great role and I ended up being uh, in in country South Australia for probably five or six years but then I, I met someone there and we ended up moving to, to Melbourne and um, worked for AECOM, the engineering consultant and then Victorian Public Service and and eventually ended up at the Australian Road Research Board uh, as the regional director for seven years and um, and uh, through that role, was just fortunate enough to work some very talented people across so many of the transport disciplines, uh, and learn so much from being in a role where I was uh, involved in in contracts and, and relationships, but also reading and reviewing and and having input to projects across surfacings and pavements and uh, concrete structures and, and traffic engineering and and um, networks and systems. 
and training and walking and cycling and all those things. And it was it was such a, a great place to, to learn. Um, and then I worked at the RACV, uh, leading their, their media on transport advocacy for seven years and um, and then decided it was just a time for a change and a break and I took some long service leave and I started looking for something quite different. And that's where I was uh, told about this very interesting new company um, called Smarterlight. And uh, I came in and um, had a chat to, to Gus Carfey, the, the owner of the, or one of the owners of the business, and the chairman of the business. And he said, now come, come look at this. And he took me into this room and there's some amazing products um, in the surfacing area, the lighting area, and um, this really interesting science of something called photoluminescence. And he took me into this room and explained the products. I thought, that's, that's good. I mean, the products look good. They're, they're well made. They're founded in science. You know, it's resonated with me as an, as an engineer. Uh, <laughs> and then he darkened the room. Um, so it was pitch black. And the room lit up from photoluminescence. And it was, wow, this is a, this is a transformational technology, a, a disruptive technology. And I was sold at that point. Um, this was this is something that would be really exciting to be part of a new disruptor in the transport space and the building safety space as well um, that could really make a difference. That's really cool. It's always I always really like hearing people's kind of origin stories, if you will, because uh, it tell it considering you've had such extensive broad experience across basically everything it's it's very it's almost rare to find that as well and then you've kind of moved from more government to private uh private sector stuff now yes and many of the things that i once accepted as being normal and and conventional when you work in the private sector you start realizing some of those things you accepted and were even part of or perhaps helped create you see the other side of it and Mm. what effect that can have on innovators, disruptors, uh, companies uh, who employ people, manufacture things in Australia, all important things that we, we need. So this has given me a really interesting insight and enables us because you know, our organisation is a blend of people from many different sectors, worked all over the world doing amazing things. And we have some very interesting discussions and debates. Uh, and we all bring our perspectives and, and voices and <laughs> opinions. Uh, and you, know, you as, a, as a person working in the innovation space as well, I'm sure would appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. It's I think some of the discussions that come out of it, particularly from switching from private to public or, or vice versa, are, are quite interesting to kind of have a bit as a, as a contrast. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a real it's a real eye opener, um, and I would encourage you know, people listening to if you've worked in government to to never refuse an opportunity to join the private sector, and vice versa. It gives you an interesting perspective, and only by people moving between the two do we take private sector expertise and, and knowledge and and ability to to pivot and and do things differently into the public service and and public service thinking about. You know, transparency and uh, accountability and public good needs to come to the private sector. Um, so people yeah. need to be playing both. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. So S- Smarterlight, back to them for a, for a minute. Uh, so the, you provide solutions for like a lot of different things, kind of as, as you mentioned, you've got the photoluminescence uh, for the buildings, but then you've also got things that relate to infrastructure projects. But I'm also particularly interested in how you guys are disrupting road safety because it's something that hasn't really been disrupted since the introduction of seatbelts and RBTs in like the 1970s. 
how does something like you've, you've vaguely mentioned like the friction treatments on road surfaces. So how does high friction treatments on road surfaces, for example, impact upon road safety? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and OmniGrip HF or, uh, is a high friction surface treatment uh, using a, uh, a material called calcine bauxite. And it's an amazing material um, that can, we genuinely believe, tra- uh, transform road safety. But strangely, it's these days relatively unknown in road safety circles. And we've got some uh, we speculate on some reasons why it's a proven technology of the 1960s in the UK. It's been picked up in a significant way in the USA, and the US Federal Highway Administration calls it part of the first line of defence. It's about keeping drivers and riders, motorcycle riders, on the road in their lane because it increases the friction between a road surface and a vehicle's tyre so that the driver's less likely to skid or lose control uh, on, for example, a sharp bend if they go in too fast, or they can come to a stop much quicker. In fact, it's mm. you know, 25 to, to just over 30% of the sorts of numbers that are talked about. And uh, I've been told it's part of the standard treatment on pedestrian crossings in urban areas oh. in the UK because a car that breaks suddenly because a person walks out and they perhaps weren't prepared or paying attention, they can stop faster and less likely to hit the pedestrian. If they hit the pedestrian, it's at a lower speed and the, the pedestrian is more likely to survive or have you know, reduced injuries, if any at all. And it's, it's a standard treatment. So it's a well-accepted technology. Now, in Australia, uh, you know, we provide this calcine bauxite high-friction surface treatment. And we've applied about 200 locations um, over, over many years um, in Australia. It's quite it's quite unusual where it is and isn't used. So it's quite big in, or has been in the past in, in Queensland. It's used um, somewhat in metropolitan Melbourne, but it's used virtually not at all in country Victoria on, on rural roads, which is really unusual because that's the yeah. location where it could make the biggest difference. And it's also used uh, somewhat in Western Australia um, uh, as well through a, a distributor of ours. But other places are just... Um, haven't used it and, and people seem genuinely unaware of it. And we've speculated on, on reasons and my personal theory is I think a lot of the road safety engineers and traffic engineers in Australia are trained to think about signs and perhaps lines and crash barriers and the area of road surfacing and road pavements is seen as a different discipline and because high friction surface treatment is a, a road surface treatment, uh, it's perhaps not considered as part of the the package of solutions to you know, reduce or eliminate a black spot, um, particularly mm. on country roads or a high-risk location on urban roads. Uh, several states use what's called crash reduction factors, uh, which is based on studies of crashes, averaged out you know, what is the uh, particular road safety measure, how effective is it at reducing crashes. And the, and the number for high-friction surfaces that's used in Australia is it reduces injury crashes by 40% wow. in general. And I've looked at one of those studies and it, it assessed sites that were really good applications or, or locations for it and others that were not so good. So it's an average of good and bad. Um, that particular study found that used in a targeted way at the right locations, the number was like 80 or 90% uh, reduction in crashes. And that's backed up by states in the US that have found up to 95 or 100% on high-risk locations where people are losing control. Wow. 
And the, the big advantage of it is not only is it so effective when used right, but it's so fast to apply. It's like any surface. It can basically be said we need the new surface from A to B, and within half a day or a day, that new surface goes down and it's working the moment that it's finished. So there's very little disruption to traffic when you compare it to other very common road safety measures like crash barriers that take months of planning and design and, and engagement and consultation with affected property owners if they can't access their farm gates and emergency services for access to the roadside. And then you've got weeks or, or months of construction and disruption to traffic and hmm. Whereas a surface, just like an ordinary maintenance reseal, goes down within hours. And, yeah. You know, and, and these treatments are as effective. And that's why we, we see it as a, quite a big disruptor because thinking in Australia isn't around, in our opinion, that road safety isn't focused necessarily on road surfaces, even though road surfaces, safe road surfaces, high-friction surfaces, can keep vehicles on the road in their lane and reduce a crash. A crash barrier is a plan B because the crash is already happening. Someone's already lost control. They're leaving the road, leaving their lane and crossing over onto the wrong side. Their vehicle is going to be smashed up. The right barrier means the person will have less severe or, or no injuries, but the crash has happened. Whereas the surface, mm. the right surface, which is much cheaper to install and faster to install, might have actually stopped that loss of control happening in the first place. Wow. Yeah, that's insane. I guess in, in two respects, the first one being the percentages by which crashes uh, are decreased. <laughs> uh, but then also that that's a very interesting disparity, particularly between, say, urban and rural, because I think it's – I'm erring on the side to say it's more common knowledge in Australia in particular that – it's if you're in rural areas, you're more likely to have more road accidents. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting that it's something that is could be considered proactive uh, is not being used as much in those areas where I think they probably need it maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I, I would agree. And um, a really strong, I guess, case for them is on popular motorcycling routes. Now, people enjoy motorcycle riding through hilly and mountainous areas. Uh, in, in Victoria, where I am, Great Ocean Road and the Yarra Ranges, and I'm sure it's the, the Blue Mountains and, yeah. and the hinterland <laughs> up in Queensland and the, and the Gold Coast. I'm sure they're very popular riding spots in, in all those states, and every state would have it. And uh, putting a high-friction surface onto some of those curves and bends might just keep a rider uh, upright and, and on the road in their lane you know, at, at very little cost. Um, crash barriers are always a problem. Any sort of barrier for a rider um, is in there impacting a, with very little protection a, a hard object or a relatively hard object. It's much better to keep them upright and in their lane um, in the first place. So motorcycling routes would, in, in rural areas or country areas, mountainous areas, would just be a clear-cut case for this technology. Yeah, interesting. So speaking on, on the idea of crashes as well, it leads very nicely to the next question, which is that, Almost 40% of fatal crashes outside of cities occur at night. So what do you think could be done on a practical level, say for councils, uh, you've mentioned kind of photoluminescence and road markings, but also possibly at like a state or a national policy level to kind of discuss the changes that could be made? Yes, um, it's, yeah, as, as I said earlier, and as you referred to, um, part of Smudlight Group is a, uh, a company called um, Safety Path and uh, our Chief Technology Officer, Zoran Avuka, has spent nearly 20 years developing what we think is the world's best photoluminescent materials and we use it in building exit signs, um, which is allowed under 
Australia's National Construction Code. But we've taken that same photoluminescent technology and put it into paints and coatings. And we're quite fortunate that Regional Roads uh, Victoria worked with us to, to put down photoluminescent line marking on the Great Asian Road at a place called Longs Creek, uh, which is not, not too far from Geelong. Uh, it, I mean, it's quite amazing at night because this, this photoluminescent line marking or safety path line marking, it looks like white line marking during the day, but at night it actually lights up. It absorbs, it absorbs daylight and it stores that energy and emits it at night. Oh. It still uh, reflects light, like ordinary line marking paint within the headlights of a vehicle, but you can see the pho- photoluminescent line ahead and outside beyond where the vehicle headlights are lighting up. So if a road is curved, headlights light up what's right in front of the vehicle, whereas the photoluminescent line marking continues and you can see the curve of the road stretching away from the driver. So we're very fortunate that Regional Roads Victoria uh, has has gone ahead with this application of it to demonstrate the technology. What's interesting for councils and road authorities is that photoluminescent line marking is enhanced visibility. Mm. Uh, so it is more visible than ordinary road line marking and, and pavement marking, uh, but it's not as expensive to install and operate as road lighting. So road lighting, particularly in country areas, you, you need in most cases, power to go to the, the, the road lighting and you need poles to be put up beside the road for mm-hmm. the design and construction costs of that and then you've got the ongoing maintenance costs. And it's just unaffordable for long lengths of, of high-risk roads in, in what's otherwise a very dark location in country areas. So we see photoluminescent line marking as bridging the gap between ordinary road line marking and the incredibly expensive electric road lighting mm-hmm. um, in that it will perform between the two in road safety and it's significantly cheaper than electric lighting. Interesting. There looks like there's also an application in terms of asset maintenance as well because, like you said, it might not necessarily be financially or physically kind of possible or feasible to put in fancy electric or even sometimes solar lighting in the middle of nowhere when it's very hard to kind of access that site regularly to maintain that infrastructure. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, everything has a maintenance cost. So this, this line marking is no more difficult to maintain. It lasts as long as ordinary road line marking. It can be easily applied. It doesn't need uh, any special equipment or, or expense and, and hassle that an ordinary road lighting would have. And ordinary road lighting also has the problem that every pole that's put up becomes a new roadside hazard. So it either has to have a, a frangible pole that can be crumpled when it's hit, but it's still an object beside the road, or it needs to have a crash barrier put around it and both the pole and all the barrier becomes a new hazard, whereas this doesn't become a hazard at all. It actually just solves a problem without creating a, a different sort of risk. So that's all good. And we've also put the, uh, the same photoluminescent material into road signs uh, as well. So we can have signs that are simply lit by photoluminescence and photoluminescence absorbs light and then emits that light. So they do, they're bright, very bright when they're when they, um, night first falls. The signs are still reflective. So they still perform like a reflective road sign yeah. uh, as well. So there's no disadvantage. They're, they're just better than ordinary road signs. Uh, but if there was a high-risk location that needed an, an internally illuminated sign all night, uh, we have one that's actually got a, a very energy-efficient solar-powered LED booster that gives it a bit more brightness um, so it can remain bright all night. So some really, really exciting um, innovations that were taken from the building sector and uh, 
uh, we've moved them to the the transport sector, um, where there's you know there's clear evidence that internally illuminated signs and and perform uh, slightly better in terms of crash reduction. Um, I think some of the data is around five percent better, and five percent off the roads hole is still still significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're we're looking at putting some of these signs on roads and doing some crash evaluations to to get some even better data because we think the numbers will be better and the line marking is there for people to see. It's clearly more visible and uh, and we're very fortunate that we received an Australian government grant, the Road Safety Innovation Fund, in, in round one. We're one of only four private sector organisations to receive a grant from the Australian government and, and they've given us some really crucial support last year Amazing. It's it sounds really awesome, and I guess a, an unintended side effect of making this podcast is it makes me very excited about things that normal people in their twenties aren't excited about, like road <laughs> markings and traffic and just road friction. <laughs> so, uh, who, who would have thought? <laughs> exactly. So for those for those who are listening and aren't aware. Um, in Australia, the National Road Safety Strategy is based on something called the Safe Systems Approach. So for the benefit of people who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Safe Systems Principles is the Australian government's long-term holistic view of the road transport system and all the interactions between roads, roadsides, speeds, vehicles, and, and basically everyone who uses that infrastructure. Just condensing it a little bit is safety could be arguably two-pronged. It can be people inside vehicles, whether that's a car or a bus or a truck or anything like that. But there's also this more vulnerable road user, such as pedestrians or people on bikes. How is new technology maybe addressing this other side of the safety coin and addressing the safe system principles, particularly for pedestrians and bike riders? Yeah, there's, there's some very important things that are happening, but it's probably in general a space that not enough is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's certainly a lot of community debate around new technologies like scooters and things on, on footpaths and whether that is good for pedestrians or, or bad, the risk of conflict and, and injury and things. But in terms of some good things, we've, we've taken the what's called the tactile ground surface indicator, that's the jargon for you, a TGSI. So in plain <laughs> English, that's the bumps. On a footpath, as your approach has it. So traffic lights um, just about everywhere now and, and ramps at uh, railway stations and the like, you'll find those bumps in there. They're called simply a TGSI, a tactile ground surface indicator. So we've we've taken and enhanced uh, a technology um, to actually make them more visible by incorporating an LED light in them. What, what happens is that the lights um, are actually in, inside the, the tactile ground surface indicator which has got LED, LED, LED safety tactiles, um, change colour with the traffic lights. So when you approach a, a signalised pedestrian, uh, a signalised intersection, rather than just looking at what's called traditionally the red or green across the road, which is quite small and hard to see across the traffic, we're putting a large visual indicator where the pedestrian is standing, and that's the bumps directly in front of the pedestrian, mm. and they change colour. They're connected to the traffic signal, so they're red when it's don't walk and they're green when it's safe to walk. I'm now saying quite a lot to people. If you if you were looking at traffic lights as a new way of controlling traffic and you're thinking about pedestrian safety, there's no way if you're doing human-centred design would you think that it's adequate to put the warning of safety on the far side of the hazard because that's what ordinary traffic lights actually do. Mm. There's this hazard of moving vehicles in front of you, but the warning is actually located across the road and it's quite small. And hard to see. So if you're 
walking in a crowd and it's short or you're, you've got some sort of vision impairment, you're distracted, using a mobile phone, looking down, um, listening to music, talking to friends or in a city environment, it's quite legitimate for a pedestrian. It's not like it's called distracted, but cities are designed to get your attention, to look at shop windows and signs and things flashing. We as society accept that the warning of whether it's safe to walk onto a road or not is a red or green light across the road and some sort of audible uh, warning in, in most cases as well, which can be hard to hear at times or if you've got a hearing impairment, you might not have better hear either. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, we've taken this a tactile um, and put these lights into it. So it's a large coloured block where the pedestrian is and it's flat and it's red warning you there's a hazard before you actually walk on the road. So it, it's quite transformational. Um, and when you see one, because there's one that's been in place for or an intersection we did several years ago, it's funded by Victoria's TAC in cooperation with what was then called Vic Roads. It's now the Department of Transport mm-hmm. uh, down on Swanson Street and Little Collins Street near Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, and it's you know, it's quite popular. It, it was installed at a location to demonstrate the technology. So uh, a proper evaluation on crashes hasn't been done because there was no crashes there in the first place. And the road at Little Collins Street is actually closed at lunchtime because there's so many pedestrians. It's closed every lunchtime to traffic um, so it's not a good spot for a crash evaluation but it's a good spot to demonstrate the technology because it's so visible but in terms of crash effectiveness uh, it's based on technology used uh, in south korea they installed or they evaluated 22 installations by some korean university academics um, the study was by park Yu and Choi, and it was published in 2014 they evaluated 22 crosswalks and found there was a 41% reduction in crashes, 39% reduction in injuries, and 55% reduction in fatalities. And they actually calculated a benefit cross ratio of 56, wow. which is amazing. So the benefits uh, in terms of you know, reduced crash, uh, reduced injuries was uh, more than 50 times the cost of installing the system. We've taken the technology, we've adapted it and modified it to suit how Australian footpaths are built and the fact that we wanted uh, ours to be on during the day. And so we've changed some of the technology in it. And, but we don't have a location that's done that same sort of crash study, as I explained before. But we did uh, just ask a, a small uh, sample of people what they thought. And 68% of people said they actually felt safer as pedestrians. They felt safer in the city uh, when walking um, through that intersection compared to others. And uh, 59% said they felt the intersection was actually easier to use. They felt safer being a pedestrian. So that's surely a positive message for encouraging people to walk. And there's this greater visibility for drivers as well. So the South Koreans identified that drivers can actually uh, increase the visibility of the pedestrians at night that were waiting to cross the road and they knew when the pedestrians had a green light and might walk out. Yeah, okay. It almost sounds a little bit like you're improving the user experience of the built environment with a focus on traffic lights, which is, I guess, you kind of almost take these infrastructures uh, for granted sometimes because they've been there for so long. You're kind of like, oh, well, that's just kind of how it is and everyone accepts it. But then if you actually look into it, you're like, actually, there are different ways that we can improve this that no one's actually thought of because I think it's just been accepted as the norm. Yeah, absolutely right, because we do accept it as the norm and we, we train our children to accept it as the norm and, they don't, and people don't know of anything better. But we're all we all become complacent, and we should just, we should be safe, even though we're complacent. Walking around our own cities, doing what the city's designed to do, and that's be a place to live and enjoy and be distracted by the things that bring us to the city in the first place. And the city should be designed and built to make you safe 
and this sort of technology can take what we've taken for granted, as you said, Emily, and, mm-hmm. and make it that much easier to see at a glance. Yeah, awesome. It sounds, it, I mean, next time I'm in Melbourne, I'll definitely have to check out that intersection. Or you could just come to Sydney, like which, whichever is easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd love it to be there. <laughs> okay, so my, my last question I always have for people is kind of a little bit more aspirational and like in a perfect world uh, kind of questions. So uh, Australia's national road safety strategy from 2011 to 2020, so like a couple of months out of date now, uh, had a target of reducing annual road deaths by 30%. And in 2018, vehicle occupants accounted for like 64% of road deaths. So in a perfect world, what one change do you think you would make uh, in the way that we approach road safety? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because in some ways there's so many things that could be done, but I think coming from, you know, speaking from the heart and the environment that we're in at the moment, it's about um, councils, road agencies, road managers uh, taking on a culture of innovation and being prepared to try and to do and to act fast. Um, particularly in a, in a post-COVID environment. Um, I think there are many innovative companies with good technologies that need someone to step outside the bounds of their own comfort zone and be prepared to take measured, calculated risks and give people and uh, companies an opportunity to try new things mm-hmm. and evaluate those things move quickly to do it, move quickly to evaluate it as short-term and long-term measures and adopt what works. Um, now, I realise there's a lot of pressure on public servants and governments that if they trialled something and it failed, they'd get massive public criticism. And there's a societal problem with perhaps allowing people in, in roles, of, in decision-making roles to actually you know, have a go uh, and, and try something different. And, and so there's, there's a bigger societal issue about allowing that and other people to try things on the chance that we'll discover the next great thing. For people in, in decision-making roles, in road safety, in road agencies, you know, they've got to step away with what they're comfortable with, what's easy to procure and implement and try something else on the chance that it will save perhaps many more lives than what they're doing, perhaps more cost-effectively. And, and you know too well, Emily, as well, that when you're working in the innovation space, there's huge challenges to getting your technology accepted and it's a catch-22 yeah. or, or chicken or egg sort of thing. So we've dealt with agencies that say, um, or, and councils, and they come to us and they say, we love your technology. Is it approved by whatever their local road agency is? Yeah. <laughs> and I say, well, no, um, um, or, or it's it's on the road in this location. But oh, we want to see a copy of of it being on the, the register of approved products. So you go to the agency and say, Can, uh, what do we need to do to put it on the register of approved products? And they say, well, you need someone locally to put it in and, and support it or to be an advocate for it. I said, but they won't, no one, well, we've got people that want to do it, but only if you approve it first, but you're saying you won't approve it unless they do it. And everyone sort of washes their hands of it because it's too hard, too risky. That's so disappointing. Yeah, We've had some success, but they were largely led by people who were, brave, who did their research, understood the technology and um, allocated their budgets to put those projects in. Most people need to be given a a huge pat on the back uh, for being prepared to do that. I'm sure many people in the road safety and innovation space uh, have stories and some won't be as good as uh, or as lucky as us. Uh, And we, we really need people to both move fast, be brave, 
be prepared for things may go wrong and be prepared to correct and adapt and learn and give feedback so the next time it's even better. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the, the public scrutiny aspect as well. It's kind of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't with the, the new kind of trials for innovation. And so that I feel like our uh, policymakers and people in government have a bit of a tough job sometimes trying to decide uh, that, that risk cost benefit analysis of uh, trialing and innovation, uh, unless somebody's going to kind of chuck a bit of a fit about it. Yeah, and uh, you know, benefit cost analysis may not be particularly strong for an early technology because uh, innovators have much higher costs um, for the first versions of, of products. True. Um, you know, they're, they're often made at a small scale, so their costs are higher, but it's only when people adopt them and they're more broadly applied that their costs come down and things become more competitive and, and all those sorts of things. So they're all challenges that innovators unfortunately face and uh we need decision makers to and, and funding bodies to accept that. And things like the Australian Government's Road Safety Innovation Fund are mm. absolute gems for the sector um, to, to have a means uh, of, of developing and trialling and sharing data and, and having some assistance from the Australian Government uh, for projects anywhere in Australia. Awesome. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking your time out to chat with me today about Smarter Light and then just road safety in general and what can be done from kind of a, a less a less thought about method, I guess, with user experience and road friction and the things we don't often think about. Wonderful. And thank you so much, Emily. I really appreciate what you're doing for the sector uh, as much as, uh, as myself. So thank you again. And I've appreciated the opportunity to, to talk to you and your listeners. If you'd like to know a little bit more about Dave or Smarter Light or Omni Group Direct Group, you can visit their website, which is www.smarterlight.com, all one word. So it's S-M-A-R-T-E-R-L-I-T-E. And if you'd like to know more about Bitesize or Compass IoT, the company that produces this podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time. 